Hey there, welcome to the Creative Classroom Podcast. I'm your host, John Spencer. I'm a former middle school teacher, current college professor, and I am passionate about seeing teachers transform their classrooms into bastions of creativity and wonder. And so on this podcast, I share ideas and strategies. I share some protocols that worked. I talk about all the things that work for me, but also those big epic fails that I've made along the way, and I am still making those mistakes and learning and growing. Because ultimately, I believe that teachers play a profound role in helping their students reach their creative potential. And one of the things I love doing in this journey of learning is interviewing experts. And sometimes I interview industry experts, sometimes I interview people from you know, all kinds of different industries. But I also love interviewing people who spent time in the classroom or who are currently spending time in the classroom as well. And one of those people is Betsy Potash. So after teaching English at every high school grade level, Betsy shifted gears to channel her experiences and love for education into making the way easier for creative teachers. She blogs, she has a great podcast. I've actually gotten to be on her podcast before. Um, I've, I've partnered with her on some resources. Um, and stirs up creative social media from her home in uh, Bratislava, I think is how you pronounce it. I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, where she lives with her husband, two kids, and little cat named Phoenix. She can usually be found drinking chai latte with her laptop in the coffee shops, rollerblading, yes, that's still a sport, or spending time in Budapest or Prague with her family. Betsy's work can be found in the uh, English Journal, Independent School Magazine, Edutopia, We Are Teachers, Read, Write, Think, Board Teachers, Cult of Pedagogy, and even linked to the New York Times. She wakes up every day excited to help support you in making your classroom a place you love to be. And today she's going to be talking about this idea of hexagonal thinking or hexagonal thinking. I'm not entirely sure yet the correct way to say it, but without further ado, here is Betsy. All right, we have with us Betsy, and um, I'm really excited about having you on this podcast to talk about this idea of hexagonal thinking. Um, before before it started, I had to say, is it hexagonal or hexagonal? Like I, I didn't want to sound dumb, um, and you sort of let me know how you've been pronouncing it this whole time, um, and that's correct, right? Uh, hexagonal's generally right. That's right. That's what I always say anyway. Hexagonal. Hexagonal. Um, so a little bit before we get into that, I, I would love to hear just a little bit about your journey. I know you're passionate about critical thinking, creativity, and really making it accessible for students and for teachers. Um, how did you get to that place? Yeah, that's a fun question for me. Um so I was a creative student who really loved the projects, who kind of waited for my teachers to reveal those opportunities to me that I would feel really excited about. And I can I can create like a timeline backwards in my head of my projects from like the inventor's fair in fourth grade to pie day in seventh grade to like the mock trial of uh, Gustave Flaubert and AP literature. And those were the moments I lived for at school. And, mm -hmm. and when I became a teacher, I really 
I really was interested in that. Why was it those moments? Why were those the only things that I really remembered from school that stuck out mm-hmm. in my head um, that I worked hard for? And I I began to explore this idea that those those creative projects, those moments when students had an authentic audience, when they felt like a true investment in their final product, how could those be the vehicle for all the learning so that that students would feel you know, they were they were practicing these things, they were learning these things for this specific purpose that they were excited about and engaged with. And as a teacher, when I started teaching in that way, I felt really um, fulfilled. I also felt honored in my own personality as an introvert. And so I didn't feel like I always had to be at the front of the classroom doing this amazing show for the kids. I I like to be with them working on what they were working on and helping them work on it. I wanted to, I wanted to get them started with slam poetry and performing plays and, and creating radio shows. Um, and I, I didn't want to be lecturing. And so I just kept experimenting and experimenting and I got such good results with my students. And then after many years, I started to think, I would like to share about this. <laughs> I would like to share this with all the teachers in the world who are who are experimenting with things like this or who haven't yet, but maybe they don't feel that supported because I didn't always feel that supported. And it was kind of hard to bring my full admin, my whole team on board sometimes because it was different. And, and so I wanted to provide that support and make teachers feel like, yes, this is a valid path. This is a fantastic path. And I have the resources I need to pursue it. It's interesting that you bring up so many different examples from teaching and from your, your own personal experience. And I'm struck by the fact that they're not all one framework. And, you know, one of the things that we, we hear about is, you know, it's, it's all about project-based learning. No, it's about inquiry-based learning. No, it's about design thinking. No, it's about things like mock trials. No, we should be doing um, play-based learning. And I think what you capture in the work that you've done is yes, it's all of it's, it's all of them. Like we don't need to be pitting these different models and frameworks against each other. We should be using them interchangeably. We should be discovering what works best based on the learning task. And really, it can be all of the above, right? I I could not agree with that more. <laughs> I remember sort of a point early in my teaching where I read some book or I went to a PD that sort of rolled out this is the way it is. This is the way you will teach from now on. And I was like, but no, <laughs> I learned these other amazing ways. I have this other idea and I want to incorporate it with this new strategy. And that is when I just absolutely iron-fistedly clung to the idea of a toolbox. We all need a toolbox and and we should put in it whatever we want and whatever works. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that you've developed is this idea of uh, you know hexagonal thinking, and um, the first time I had ever heard of it was when you were this is this was probably a couple of years ago when you were on um, Cult of Pedagogy podcast, and um, it was so well developed. I just assumed it was something someone had developed that you had you know like I, I think I missed that detail in the discussion. Um, so tell me a little bit about the development of that. Tell me a little bit about what it is, um, just for, for people who are unfamiliar. 
Yeah. Well, I want to be clear that I didn't invent it. Every, okay, every so time you I did it. To, I, I, I wondered. I was like, okay, it. so so you didn't. Where, where is the background? <laughs> there you go. I, I think I missed that detail. All right. Yes. So so you discovered it, right? Or you searched yes. for it. So I was like, it's I have so well developed far and, and wide. Yet it's so uh, accessible. So let's start there. Where did you learn about it? Because there's very, I'll just start with like, this is my own lack of, of, of background knowledge. I really didn't, hadn't heard much about, like, like you were the first person I had ever heard about it. And there's not, I feel like there's not a lot out there in terms of that. So like, how did you find out about it? You know, I think I saw an example of a discussion somewhere in my Facebook group. I think I saw somebody was like, I tried this hexagonal thinking and it was cool. And so I went on a, you know, a deep dive trying to figure out what is this? Where did this come from? Who's talking about this? Where where can I learn more? And Mm -hmm. what I discovered on the Internet was there were some vague references to it coming out of the business world. It's some innovation from the business world that helps people think outside the box. And I was like, well, that's cool. I like thinking outside the box. And so I, I looked into it more and I thought, how can I make this really easy for teachers? How can I make this really accessible? Because like you said, I just didn't see a lot of information. I didn't see any template kits, you know? Yeah. And so my goal was just to take this concept that that already existed, that was really cool and Uh make it easy (laughs) and make it accessible for teachers to just plug and play ideas so that they can have a hexagonal discussion anytime they want, like with any text, with any film, with any type of unit. And how does it work? So just give it a description of yes. what it is, how it works. This is always fun to do on a podcast. I know, I know. <laughs> because it's, it's very, very visual. visual. And so it's before very... you go there, like I would love to say <laughs> just a quick plug. You do have uh, resources where people can download this. There's the the toolkit. You want to share that a little bit before we kind of explain it? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to give John the link for the show notes that just has like the full toolkit with everything you need to tell your students, everything you need to know about grading it, all the templates so that you can just make it super simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me explain it. So think of a hexagon. It has six sides. And in a hexagonal thinking conversation, students are going to get a bunch of hexagons. It can be digital, it can be on a Google slide, or they can Mm -hmm. be paper. And if you're in person, I think paper is a lot of fun. Uh So you're going to give them this deck, I call it, a deck of hexagons. Maybe it's going to have 10 or 15 of these little six-sided pieces of paper. And on the paper, you're going to put terms that relate to your unit. Now, say you're an English teacher like me. Say you're teaching 1984. You are going to put on your deck different things related to 1984. You're going to want to start with the book itself. So you choose Mm -hmm. some characters. Um, Then you maybe choose some of your favorite quotes from the recent reading that really will get students thinking. Then you, you think of some themes and you put down the themes, but you go out from there and you think, how can I connect this to my students' lives? And so then you think of things like digital privacy or um, internet surveillance. You start to bring up things that relate to 1984, but maybe not on the immediate surface to your students. And then you think of connections like to history, to the Cold War, to Stalin, to McCarthy. You you think of whatever you can think of 
art, other books, anything, and you put them on these hexagons. And then you divide students into small groups and you give them the deck. And you say, now there's no right answer, but I want you to take these hexagons and discuss as a group, how would you connect to them? If you Mm -hmm. put in the center, the character of Winston, what's going to be touching? Which hexagons are going to touch those six sides connecting to Winston? Is Julia Mm -hmm. more connected to Winston than Joseph Stalin? (laughs) Is, Mm. is, you know, online surveillance, does it belong in the map over here next to Julia? Or does it belong more in the map that you've created like way over here next to um, the Cold War? Like you just kind of, you start to debate and students start to move the hexagons around. It and when they're moving out- them around, like how, like visually, how, how would this visually. look? I, I want to try to picture it as clear as I can. Okay. So they have the, they have their empty table or their empty desk and they have mm-hmm. these little pieces of paper scattered all over and they start, they start to little by little make connections. So maybe somebody has got a couple of characters together and they say these characters have to go together because they're they're always presented together and they're you know they're in love and they really value each other and then somebody else is like no you can't connect them there because i need that character over here that's going to connect to this key quotation that's all about that character is going to connect to this other thing and this other thing and this war and then they have to debate and they have to explain this is why i believe <laughs> These two characters have to be together. And then somebody else has to defend, well, that is valid and I respect your opinion, right? There's a lot of group dynamics work that has to happen, but I really think it should be over here. And they they continue to debate. And of course, you need to reiterate to them, there is no correct final web of hexagons that is the right answer. And so it's all about how can they defend their choices. And so you give them, you know, the first time, maybe you give them 10 minutes and you kind of get longer and more complex as you go. Maybe after 10 minutes, you give them a few more hexagons that are more complex and say, see how, see if you can get these into your web. Mm-hmm. Maybe you give them a hexagon that's an image or a hexagon that's a QR code that leads them to watch a video and they have to figure out where they would put the video in their, in their web. There's so many different levels that you can go to as students get more advanced. And then once they finally have their web and they're happy with it or your time has run out and they have to be happy with it, you're going to give them a chance to present back. Now, that could look like they tape their web up on the wall and the kids go around and they do a gallery walk. And then each group presents one key connection. Like this is the nexus (laughs) where we feel like the most interesting connections are. And they explain that nexus. Or maybe you ask them to write and you say, you know, separate from your group now, just write individually. What's one connection that you found the most interesting that your group came up with? Or maybe you have them present back verbally. There there are a lot of different ways that you can do that at the end. So if we think about this, um, you know, one of the things I love about it is it's really built on critical thinking and connective thinking. It's about making those different connections between sometimes seemingly unrelated ideas But it also seems like this type of thinking, of connective thinking, is what leads to divergent thinking and creativity as well, right? So it starts with connective thinking and critical thinking, but it can spark, you know, creativity, which is, I mean, something we talk about a lot. So I'm I'm curious, how would you see the connection moving from that connective thinking? that critical thinking into a place of creativity. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's really helpful when you first start out with hexagonal thinking to try it with something kind of simple and straightforward so that students can just start to understand the model. Maybe you do it with some of their favorite Netflix shows or some of their favorite candies, right? And you just give them five minutes and say like, ooh, is Skittles more like M&Ms because they're both round (laughs) or Skittles more like Smarties because they both don't involve chocolate or, you know, whatever. And they start to debate. And then as you as they get comfortable and you start to add more complexity, maybe you move into a novel or you move into a hexagonal discussion of different poems that relate to each other, then they're going to start to see, okay, this isn't just about like, oh, well, these two are both characters, so they're connected, right? Or mm-hmm. these two are both themes. I have a whole little theme area over here. Because there are so many of them and they're all going to be presenting like different ideas and they're going to have to defend why their idea is the most interesting, why their idea deserves that one single little edge of the hexagon more than other Mm -hmm. ideas. They're going to be pushed to make connections that are much deeper than, well, these two are both characters or like, this is a quote and this person said that quote. That's not enough. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think at at that point, you want to be doing some modeling with them too. And you want to be doing a little bit of pushing if they're kind of stuck in the these are all characters and these are all quotes mode mm-hmm. um and then as they continue you're going to keep adding those those layers maybe you ask them to come up with some connections to other things that are happening in their life or other things that are happening in their other classes and so then you're giving them a deck of 15 and then everybody in the group has to come up with something else unexpected that they're going to share and then incorporate into their conversation. For me, hexagonal thinking is very much not a one and done thing. I don't think Mm -hmm. you should do, you know, the hexagonal thinking discussion for the term and then that's it. It's it's a model that you can come back to every couple weeks and keep keep layering that complexity and see students start to use more critical thinking, more depth, start to be thinking more um, beyond what's obvious. So as you think about this idea of hexagonal thinking, integrating it, getting deeper with it, what do you think, um, the examples that you've given have connected to language arts, but where would it fit into some of the other subject areas? Yeah, well, I mean, for me, it's very easy to use it across the humanities and into science. I my my background in math is limited. And so I'm not as sure about how to use it there. But like let's say you're you're teaching um a science unit about cloning. You you can bring in all these terms, these these scientific concepts that relate to cloning, but then you can bring in these current event stories. Um, Then you can bring in, you know, snippets from a short story that's about, you know, the apocalyptic future with clones everywhere. Then you can bring in, you know, hypothetical questions about what could happen in the future in different scenarios. And all of a sudden, students aren't just thinking like, okay, this term relates to this definition. They're thinking like, wow, if we follow the path that's laid out here by this research, do we get to this apocalyptic dystopian short story? (laughs) Like, is that the next step here? Oh my gosh, it is. Like, that's where it fits in the hexagonal web. 
You know, it's interesting that you share that because it does have me thinking about, I know your, your background isn't as much in math, but I used to do concept maps with math when I taught self-contained and concept maps are so often used in social studies and science, right? But in math, it was interesting to get a snapshot into what students know, what they don't know, and the connections they're making between ideas. And we tend to think of math as really linear, but it's not like we need those synaptic connections happening. And so it is interesting because I could see where for the conceptual side of math, it could be really powerful, um, especially in some of the higher level math where the breakdown is in, I don't understand the context of this, or I don't understand the conceptual side of it. I've been doing very procedural style math and you know, something like a hexagonal thinking activity could just be that spark that gets them making the connections between something that they learned before, something they learn now, the similarities between two different processes, that type of stuff. I'm guessing it would be a challenge, but I think like it's a challenge that math teachers could take on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think whatever your field is, you're probably really passionate about it and you know, Mm -hmm you know what all these interesting connections would be that you could put on your deck. And all you have to do is just, you know, start with 10 or 15 things and throw it out to students. And chances are you're going to start to see, oh, you know what would be interesting? Just listening to them talk about this is making me think, what if we added this into the conversation? Mm-hmm. And you can just add them on the fly. <laughs> have some mm-hmm. blank hexagons on your desk. And if you see students going down an interesting path, like, play a little funny piece of music on your computer and be like, oh, we've reached the 11 minute mark where you get a new hexagon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Um, So you mentioned, you know, you really want kids, students not to be risk averse with this, right? You want them to understand it's not about my <laughs> layout of hexagons is right, yours is wrong, that, that type of thing. But then at yeah. the same time, we also know that we we need to be able to assess activities like this. And so when it comes to this type of activity, this type of thinking, how do you assess it? Yeah, that's a great question. And inside the digital toolkit, I have some advice for this because I know it feels kind of overwhelming. You don't want to... Um, you don't want to have that one kid in the discussion group that's just kind of like sitting back and watching everybody else and doesn't care. And so I I would suggest there are a couple ways to go. You can give a group grade as you kind of are walking around, especially as you start, that just has to do with like participation and caring and, and trying to like throw some ideas out there, but also listen to other people's ideas. But then if you really want to grade the critical thinking in the end. I think it comes down to that, the video that a student makes to to share their opinion or their their one-page writing that talks about sort of that nexus point or the paper that they write after they do the, the hexagonal thinking web and start to think about all these ideas in a different way, the like one-page thesis-driven argument they give for like why that nexus point had to be the way it had to be. Um, it's it, at least for English, it's, it's not such a different thing to grade than anything else. It's about students showing what they learned either with an interesting talk or interesting writing, um, that defends their points. Well, 
final question. If a teacher is thinking about this and they want to get started, what is the best, most manageable way to get started? And I know you alluded to this with start out small and things like that, but let's say a teacher says, all right, next Friday, I want to try it with blank. What, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, well, I would have them grab that toolkit that I made uh -huh. for them because it really lays it all out. And then all they have to do is go into the templates that they can print and just type in their terms. So whatever unit you're doing, if it's about a short story, if it's about a type of science, if it's about a, an, an era of history, whatever it's about, think about the big concepts and ideas, put in a few connections to other um, disciplines, to pop culture, to, to historical events, whatever you want, um, and just create a deck of 10 or 15 ideas. Then when you roll it out to students, you know, do a little quick modeling for them um, and let them know this is our first crack at this. We're going to be learning as we go. This is our first hexagonal thinking discussion. We're going to have another one in two more weeks. And it's going to be about learning to trust each other, to listen to each other, learning to make connections that maybe you never would have thought of before um, and, and to enjoy the process. And so just like take it step by step. Now, if you have time, the day before, if you have 10 minutes to do like a, a candy-based <laughs> hexagonal thinking discussion or a Netflix show-based hexagonal thinking discussion as a warm-up, that's definitely going to make your life easier. Um, but I definitely think you can just jump right into topic-based if you're on quite a tight time schedule. Well, I appreciate your um, sitting down and, and sharing this. And um, I love how practical and accessible you've made this. Um, it really does feel like something that teachers can use, you know, tomorrow. Like it's one of those things that's very practical. Um, and I feel like it gets students engaged in that critical connective thinking in a way that's very visible. And um, that was just one of the things I was really struck by the first time I heard you talk about this. Yeah, I, I love to see what the final webs look like, like all over desks, all over walls, down the hallway. <laughs> it's yeah. so inspiring. And it it's just a visual reminder that we all think differently and that there, there are great things to be found, you know, in everyone's head. <laughs> Everyone yeah. has their great ideas to share and, and hexagonal thinking helps bring that out. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It's all right, so there you have it. That was Betsy Potash talking about this idea of hexagonal thinking. And, um, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed by that mistake. Um, and I was, like, thinking about taking out the mistake where I didn't realize she hadn't been the one to originally develop it. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to keep that in there um, to model the reality that I make mistakes. I try to research people and I try to stay up on where things come from and, and research. And the reality is sometimes I miss details and um, I loved how gracious she was about it, how she explained that. And honestly, I, I find that to be, um, just being open about mistakes is vital and necessary. So um, I love the work that she has. I love the free resources that she has on this. Please go check them out. Um, they're awesome. And would you do me a favor? If you enjoy this podcast, would you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify? Would you consider maybe subscribing? Um, 
and tell someone about it. Uh, word of mouth is still one of the best ways to find out about podcasts. So again, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and go out and make something awesome.